Hi. So two weeks ago, Saturday night, I'm at home and I'm, of course, thinking about coming here. I'm the worship pastor here at church. And the following Sunday morning, I was, uh, we had planned for me to do a solo piano leading weekend. It was just going to be me playing the piano and singing songs and leading all of you. Uh, but I was also in a hurry to get ready for a family vacation, our annual trip that we take to central Wisconsin to spend time on my parents' uh, lake cottage where there's like 39,000 kids and uncles and aunts everywhere. It's camp chaos out there. So uh, my mind is kind of busy. And in the midst of the hurriedness of all that, I accidentally grabbed the handle of a saucepan that had recently come out of an oven. That's right. <laughs> that, that hurt. My hand got blistered up a little bit. It swelled. Um, I'm sitting there. It's Saturday night at like 10 o'clock, and I'm, I can't move it very well. So I text Pastor Mark and our tech director, Derek Kring. I'm like, hey, dudes, I'm not going to be able to lead worship tomorrow. I'm really sorry. So Derek steps in, um, makes an announcement that Michael hurt his hand and can't play the piano and proceeds to lead all of you in great worship, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, so I missed that Sunday, and then the following Sunday, I'm on vacation. Now back up to just this last Friday, and I had the privilege, my hand is all better, look, see, hands all, <laughs> oh my gosh. you guys are proving the point I'm trying to make with this story. Um, my hand is all better, and I had the privilege of playing piano at Pastor Mark's daughter's wedding. Congratulations, Ashley and Peter, that's right. Now, as you can imagine, I... So many people were coming up to me at that wedding reception, grabbing my arm, like, hey, how's your hand? How's your hand? How's your hand? How's my hand? I, I felt like pausing the reception and standing up and making an announcement, but it was just amazing. Michael, we've been so concerned. We've been praying for you. Our small group took out an insurance policy on your hand for you. <laughs> no, that actually didn't, didn't happen. But it was so great to be on the receiving end of so much concern. It was amazing. And that is a visible, tangible testimony to the work that God continues to do, to do at this church. Forming of community of people that cares, prays, and looks after one another. The whole event, really. There were stories being told about what God has done. My wife got up early from the table, grabbed a gaggle of New Hope ladies, and they burned holes through that dance floor. I mean, Backstreet was back, all right? <laughs> it was fantastic. And I'm thankful that God gave me that experience because I have been planning for a while now to take the time I have behind this pulpit to talk to you about the church. Now... This message this morning is going to be a little different. It is clearly and plainly topical. Um, at Pastor Mark's leading, of which I wholeheartedly agree, the vast majority of the time that we preach behind this pulpit, we look into specific scripture verses and we dig really deep. A topical message does it a little differently. We, we examine a topic and we examine a bunch of different scripture messages to get a bigger picture of what that is. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Let's pray. God, we are gathered here. We are a church. We are your church, bought and paid for, Lord Jesus, by your sacrifice on Calvary, purchased with your blood. Jesus, I beseech you that you would send your Holy Spirit into this place to make clear 
where I may not be, to encourage, to strengthen, and to unite this group of people, to form us more perfectly into what you would have us be. I pray this now, Jesus, for your glory in your name. Amen. So what is the church? I want to show you the word for church that we get from the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Bible, which are in the language of Greek. A lot of Greek words here at New Hope. Take a look. Ecclesia. The word translated church in the English Bible is ecclesia. This word in Greek, it's kaleo, which means to call, with the prefix ek, which means out. Thus, the word means the called out ones. The church is the called out ones. Have you ever been called out? Now, I have a friend, a really good friend, good guy. We spent a lot of time together, and he's a terrific salesman, very successful salesman. And quite a few years ago now, we were hanging out at his house having a bonfire, and we were running low on wood. So me and him hopped into a car and went looking for some firewood. I don't know if you've seen this before, but people put stacks of firewood by the side of the road. And so we pulled up to a house that had all these cords of wood. There was a sign that said $8 per bundle, and there was a little drop box where you could put money in and grab the wood. Anybody ever seen this sort of thing? Uh, my buddy takes three bundles of wood, places it into the back of his van, and I watch as he pulls his wallet out and he takes out a 20. Now, I know you weren't expecting a math lesson, but three times eight is not 20. It's 24. So he's about to put the $20 into the box, and I piped up. Hey, uh, what are you doing, man? It's $24. Now, my friend proceeds to tell me that he buys wood from the side of the road all the time, and he, every single time he is always able to negotiate down the price of the wood, which I have no doubt. <laughs> I don't doubt that at all. I'm like, you know what, though, dude? There's nobody here to negotiate with. And he was a bit stunned at how firm I pushed on this, but after a little haggling with me about the virtues of integrity and character, he finally relented, put the full $24 into the bin, and took the wood. What did I do? I called him out. Now, to be fair, my wife told me to say this. I've probably been called out more by him than me to him, so I don't want you to think I'm some sort of high and mighty guy. That's not how it goes. But yeah, you're called out. In the church... We are the ones that are called out by God. Uh-oh. Called out? I don't want to be called out. Do you like being called out? Be honest. Is that an experience that you enjoy? Ooh, God, 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 call me out. Me next. That sounds terrifying. But you know, while we don't want to be called out, church, it's very simple. In our natural human state, nobody seeks God. I can say that on the authority of Romans 3. We don't want God's attention, much less to be called out by him. However, and this is a big however, church, when God calls you out, yes, it's a little bit like being called out for doing something wrong, like uh, lowballing an absent firewood roadside retailer, because when we are called, we are sinners. However, when God calls someone out, it is not to shame. It's from shame. God's call is from shame to glory. When God calls out, it's different. It's not like how we call out. God's ways are different than our ways. It's different. Just flip the idea of calling out right on its head and you can start to appreciate this. 
How would you like to be called out of something terrible? Called out of loneliness. Called out of confusion. Called out of grief. Called out of defeat. Called out of hopelessness. Called out of death. Church, in Jesus, you have. You have. Because when God calls someone out, it's not to shame. It's from shame to glory. Look at this verse, this popular verse, that describes what we become when God calls us out. But you, that's you, believers, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out. Do we have that, that slide, Jody? Do we have that one? First Peter? There you go. Now, I know it's a popular verse, and some of you are trying to complete that verse in your head right now, but for just a few seconds, would you just take a look at that and appreciate the way God calls us out? He calls us out, chosen people, royal priesthood. Now, look at how this verse finishes. Jesus, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Darkness is sin. Darkness is death. Light is hope. Light is life. Now, let me ask you, what is our reasonable response to a God who by his own initiative, working his own plan, through his own death and resurrection, has made a way for people like us to be called out of darkness and sin into light and hope. I will tell you plainly what our reasonable response is. Whatever God says. Whatever God says. That's the only reasonable response. And I sense, um, I sense this is where, where churches lose directions. In this spot that we're standing in right now, when we have kind of taken a few minutes and fully uh, surveyed the glory of what has God for, done for us and calling us out and making us a, a chosen people, we, we, we get here and we lose direction. Because from here, church, it's from this place of awing and admiring Jesus Christ that God wants us to go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, Jesus says, baptizing in them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. God has called us out and given, given us a mission, a purpose. There's a formula of sorts. The Bible is not silent on what God wants his called out ones, that what we are to be doing. He's not silent on that. Now, I want you to stay with me for the next minute or two because it's going to get a little tangly, but just hang in there with me, okay? I'm going to put this next uh, slide up because I'm going to present to you one of the overarching purposes of the church. It's very simple. In pursuing God's purposes for the church, we bring glory to Jesus Christ. All of creation is for God's glory, including the church. Our overarching purpose eternally is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. I want to prove that to you. I want you to look at the very 
last verse of the book of Ephesians, after Paul has labored writing everything that he has written to the church in Ephesus, explaining everything that he has explained, he, he writes this in the, as the very last words of his pen. To him, that's Jesus, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You catch that? To him be the glory. There is glory in the church. There is glory here. And we are to work to direct it and point it and give all the admiration and all the credit for all the things that happen here and direct it straight at Jesus. How do we do that? By making disciples. Here it is. We work to duplicate glory givers. It's a work of duplication. The more disciples, the more glory. And there's one more layer. I told you it would get a little tangly. There are four purposes of the church that God gives us as immediate actions that we are to be pursuing all the time. And we find those from Acts 2.42. So I'm going to try and clear it up. Okay, here we go. There is an eternal overarching purpose of the church, and that is to bring glory to God. It's eternal. Why? Because as a church, as a people that are called out, we will spend eternity throughout all of eternity giving praise to God, bringing glory to God. It's eternal. There is an overarching, what I am calling, I couldn't find a better word, temporal purpose of the church, that is to make disciples. It's temporal because the only opportunity that we have to make disciples is in this life. That's the only time we get to do it. When we get to heaven, there will be no more making disciples. So God wants us to understand, hey people, go therefore make disciples of all nations. We need more glory givers. And then we have the four purposes of the church of which new hope is founded upon. And those four are learning, loving, worship, and prayer. Now, we've seen Jesus' great commandment to make disciples from Scripture, and we have seen how we are supposed to bring glory to God from Scripture. I want to show you from the Bible where we get learning, loving, worship, prayer. It's Acts 2.42. Take a look. They, and that is the early church, early, early church, the very first Christians, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking the bread, and to prayer. Let me... Let me um, make that look a little different for you so you can uh, more fully understand. They were what? Continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's learning. They were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. That's loving one another. They were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. That's worship. And they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So for the remainder of our time together, I'm going to talk about learning, loving, worship, and prayer. Um, those are four big topics, would you not agree? So I'm going to be moving kind of fast, um, but as a church, we have to understand everything that we do needs to fall under the umbrella of these purposes. Now, I've heard it said, and I think this is great, teaching is the rudder of the church. Think about that for a second. I think that's great. The church is going to move eventually in whatever direction that the teaching is coming out of here. Um, we are very blessed to have a church that is committed to accurate Bible teaching. Now you, can you understand why that's so important? If we go wrong here, we're going to go wrong everywhere. The teaching is the lead-off hitter for the church because we can't, we can't um, 
uh, we don't worship God the way we decide to. Does this not make sense? We need to learn what God has to say about loving people, about worship, and about prayer. And notice, uh, in our Acts 2, they were devoted to disciples' teaching, but the, the purpose isn't teaching. And it's very simple to understand why. If I say I'm devoted to teaching, what am I doing? I'm learning. And you can't pass teaching off to some, you can't pass learning off to someone else. Not all of us are teachers, but I'm here to tell you that God has commanded every single believer that is in his church to be devoted to learning. Now, I just want to point out one aspect of what it means to learn in God's economy, and then we'll move on to our next purpose. And in order to get there, I'm going to bring us back to the Great Commission and show you a different translation up here, and we're going to examine a word a little bit more thoroughly. This is the uh, English Standard Version of uh, Matthew 28, 20. We are to be teaching them, the new disciples, to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Observe. That's kind of an interesting word, isn't it? In other translations, you will find it obey. In the uh, New American Standard Bible that we mostly use on here, it's the word follow. But an interesting word, and, and here's what it is. In this sense, it, it means to uh, protect. It means to guard. There's military implications into, with this word. It's not like if you were to go out and observe a full moon. It's, it's not in the sense that you see something. It's like this. This is the best way I can come up with it. We observe the commandments of Christ the way we observe Christmas. What do you do to observe Christmas? I'll tell you what I do. Put like 4,000 lights on my house. I get a Christmas tree. We have special events. We buy presents. We wrap them up. We may even have a Christmas Eve service in this building, even if there's no power to it. We do, and in doing, we preserve. We preserve the preciousness, the glory, the beauty, the majesty of Christmas by continuing to do these things for the event. This church, this church is how we are supposed to observe the commandments of Christ. This is the expectation God has of us to observe his commandments. There is a trend. I'm, you know what, I, used, I was going to say, I think there's a trend. I'm going to go on the record and say, there's a trend in the church today that we too closely associate learning with just coming to an intellectual understanding. You learn like you would learn material for a test. But learning as a disciple is about imitating. It's about performing and doing. A student wants to know what the teacher knows for the grade to complete the class or the degree, or even out of respect for the teacher. A disciple wants to be like the teacher. As the rabbi lived and taught his understanding of the scriptures, his disciples listened and watched and imitated so as to become like him. This is biblical scholar Ray Vanderland. I love water sports. I just mentioned, I actually just got back from spending a week and a half on a lake at my parents' cottage with ski boats. I practically grew up on a lake water skiing. I do a lot of water sports. My body creaks in many places because of all that kind of stuff. My favorite water sport, though, I think, especially at my age, is barefooting. Does anybody know what barefooting is? Um, yeah, you, it's skiing with no skis. 
Another way to think about it would be, think about skipping a rock, but a person with poor judgment. <laughs> All right, that's barefooting. So um, let's say right now I, I get a big old bus and we all hop on it. And we head out to my parents, we head up to my parents' lake house to get you down by the water. And I got all the equipment there for you. And I explain everything that I think you need to know. Uh, this is how you should stand. You can expect this to happen. This is where you need to look, body position, all that stuff. And I go through it, I go through it, and you're repeating it to me. And we spend all the time we need to know. And we get to the end and like, you know it. Oh, you know how to barefoot. And I'm like, great, let's go home. We hop back in the bus. We come all the way back to East Lansing. You get out. You're all excited. You run up to your friends. Are you going to say that you learned to barefoot? No. No, you're not. In God's economy, church, we have learned patience when we are patient. We have learned love when we're loving. We have learned the Great Commission when we are making disciples. And I want to encourage us all to understand the high, high bar God has asked of us in our learning, and I don't want us to shrink back from it. We absolutely need accurate Bible teaching. Don't get me wrong. How, how can you do something you don't first understand in your mind? I'm not trying to minimize that at all. I'm just trying to highlight and emphasize that the high calling that we have, and I can't be faithful to God's word without completing the thought by saying this. We have not learned God's commandments until we are demonstrating them to the world. You know what? Those commands are summed up in a single word. Love. Our second purpose. The commands of Jesus Christ, the commands of God, are all summed up in a single word. Love. And that is the second purpose of the church. In the New Testament, 16 times, in six different books, the idea of loving God is directly equated to obeying his commandments. 16 times times. Do you want to love Jesus? Let me tell you how Jesus wants you to love him. He wants you to obey him. Do you have a desire uh, to obey? Then love. It works both ways. Um, you may recognize these words from Jesus in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Learning serves a purpose. We learn to love. Now, the Apostle Peter, writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls members of Christ's church, you and I, living stones, built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Now, let's think about that for a minute. I have two thoughts for you. We are the living stones, the living pieces that God is building into a building on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. How do you do that? Practically. First, you have to align the stone the stones that you're putting on the cornerstones have to line up with the cornerstone. You can't just throw them on there. The, the stones that you put on the cornerstone can't decide they want to point in a different direction. They, they have to be out of angle. It's another emphasis on uh, the priority of learning in the church. We have to learn how to line up with Jesus Christ. For example, it, going back to our barefoot um, 
story there. If we're up there and I get you there, and, and, and the boat is going this way, and you try to barefoot this way, you might, your face might hit the water at 40 miles an hour. It doesn't work. And now aligned, having learned how to do that from God's word, the living stones of God's church support one another. That is the whole idea of being living stones. Some of us need support. Some of us provide it. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 with me. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ, the cornerstone, from whom the whole body, thus the living stones, being fitted and held together, built up by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, that's us working, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In love. You know, what I... I've been around churches a while, and I know I've worked here for a long time, so maybe you might take what I'm saying weirdly, but I'm telling you honestly, this is an awesome church. This church really cares for people. And as a pastor, I have the privilege of sitting in with meetings and praying for many of you. And to hear and see the heart of the people that are in this church that work so hard to seek out and care for the people that need it. Um, it's inspiring. It is clear evidence of God's work. I'm kind of off script, sorry. Um, so here's my encouragement to you. If you are able and available to help, let us know. What do you have? What can you do? What are your skills? Um, maybe it's just fervent prayer. And I, I say just, I can't even believe I said that. It's probably the most powerful thing we can do. Here's the other thing I want to let you know. Do you need support? Are you not sure that your, your living stone is lined up with the cornerstone? Please let us know. Let somebody know. We have pastors in this prayer room after every service. And I, I'm just telling you, man, I think it would be awesome is at a culture of a church if this thing was just mobbed every Sunday. Like people were just pushing people out of the way to get in there. Maybe not that. Maybe not that. But I, if you have a need, I almost guarantee it, based upon what I've seen over the last 15 years, somebody at this church is probably able to meet it. And if you have resources or you have time, there's probably somebody in this community that could use your help. Where was I? All right. All right, so loving. There's one more aspect of this loving purpose of the church that I want to point out because it is, the, it is the thread from moving to loving to worship. If you remember, the connection between learning and loving was plain, okay? We need to learn to obey God's commandments, and God's commandments are clearly to love. Now, there's, there's a great verse in the Bible that every worship pastor probably has memorized, um, that I want to show you about another aspect of what loving one another will do. You ready? It's from Matthew 5, 16, and this is Jesus Christ speaking. Let your light 
shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, that's us loving one another, and I will add, as a result, glorify or worship your Father who is in heaven. Our demonstration of God's love for each other and to the world will draw people into worship. When we're loving one another, we're being those stones supporting and being supported. People see that, see how weird that is. They see the power in which we operate and they can't explain it. It draws people to us. Oh, we're going to make people mad for sure. But it, there's a peculiarness to it that will draw people. Um, at that wedding that I was at on Friday, I was having a conversation with one of you. I don't see you. I'm not going to call you out. <laughs> and uh, uh, we were just talking about worship at New Hope, and I was sharing something, and she was like, oh, Michael, you, you have to share that tomorrow. And I wasn't planning on it. It doesn't really fit, but I'm going to go for it anyway. I feel that the Holy Spirit maybe wants me to do that. So what I was explaining is this. Um, I started playing violin at a Christmas Eve service when I was four years old. And uh, so, not that I was like a worship leader, but i was been involved in worship services since I'm about four. And now I'm 22. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I had a brief stint as a loan officer uh, selling stuff. Uh, but even then, I was sucked right back into playing at a church within a couple weeks of, of doing that. Uh, so I've been leading worship a long, long time. And I can tell you something this about this particular church, being a worship leader here. I, it is absolutely evidence of the power of God here. And I'm being totally honest with you. Every single Sunday I've led worship here, there's something I'm excited about. I, I can't say that about our staff meetings. I love you all staff people, but I can't say that about anything else in my life. Every single Sunday, I'm like, oh, that's going to be cool. Oh, I can't wait to hear her sing that song. Or New Hope's going to love this. Every time. I, I, I can't imagine myself being able to gin up any sort of enthusiasm over the course of 15 years on a weekly basis. Michael is not capable of that. Trust me. Now, um, let's go back to our uh, barefoot analogy while we're, while we're at it. All right. I'm going to take you back. I took you up to the the cottage. I shared everything I needed to know, you to know about how to barefoot. I went through the whole routine. You got it drilled into your head, but you didn't get on the water. You know what you missed? The thrill of it. You gained all the knowledge, but you never got out on the water, and you missed the thrill of it. You will miss the steady, strong wind across your face, the power of the boat trying to pull you over your toes, that, that whining seam sound of your feet pressing the water into the spray behind you. If you just understand God, but don't experience him, if you don't dare to live out the commandments of love in your life, I'm here to tell you, you're going to miss the thrill of him. He knows what he's doing, church. God has a, quite a plan here. Dare to obey his commands of love and you will experience the thrill of him. Now, I would uh, hope that your expectation of me as your worship pastor would be that I could probably teach worship, of course. But I've had my teaching head on now for 31 minutes and 40 seconds. And so I just want to switch gears instead. 
I'm going to do something very, a little different. I'm simply going to tell you about my Jesus. I'm going to, I'm just going to read it, and I want to tell you about him, and then I'm going to leave it up for you to decide for yourself if he is worthy of worship. Jesus. Well, he performed his first miracle, stating at the time he hadn't planned on performing it, to simply help out a friend keep a party going. He spoke the kindest words to the most despised people. He put people's lives back together that had been hopelessly broken. Kids loved him. The power-hungry and self-righteous hated him. He absolutely confounded the most brilliant thinkers of his time, and he wasn't yet 35 years old. He preached and traveled and ministered to people with such passion and energy that he once slept through a violent storm on a lake in an open-bowed boat. And when he woke up, he commanded the storm to stop, and it did. He fed hungry people so much food there were baskets and baskets left over. He once stood in front of an angry crowd of his enemies and openly invited them to accuse him of a single sin. And they couldn't do it. He made and kept friends with prostitutes and criminals and hypocrites and cowards. And for all of this, we killed him. It was all part of the plan, though. He's not dead anymore, right? Now, he hangs out in hospitals. I've seen it. He stands with the low and sits in authority over the strongest. He seeks out and saves people. He breathes life into people. We don't fail to see Jesus working somewhere because he's not. I believe that we fail to see Jesus at work because he is at work everywhere. If you are a believer, Jesus is working on you or in you right now. I have a grandfather who was a bona fide World War II hero. I regret that I didn't have the maturity at the time before he passed to spend more time learning about his life and learning about the wisdom that he's gained along the way. And he's gone now. But that's okay. Because someday, I will have all the time in the world to catch up. And you know who guarantees me that? Do you know who has the strength, who has the authority to do that? Jesus does. And someday, Jesus will come back. This is a little weird, but this is what the Bible says, people. He's going to be riding a horse, carrying a sword, and his name will be tattooed on his thigh. He will right every wrong. And as the nations of the world line up to oppose him with all their weapons and philosophies and pride, he just might laugh. Because he will bring all the lies and the violence to an end with a word. In my view, and in the view of Almighty God, Jesus Christ is most certainly worthy of the highest, best, never-ending praise of all creation. And if you agree, would you be, do me a favor and just say amen. amen. Prayer. Last purpose of the church to share with you today, church. You know, in Jesus' earthly life, the Prince of Peace, as we call him, he was only ever physically violent for one reason. 
Jesus did get angry, but he was only ever aggressive for a single reason. Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11 as gentle and humble in heart. Jesus did get angry, but for one reason and one reason only did he ever get violent. In Jesus' time, the temple was the center of religious and spiritual life for God's people. God designed it and gave lengthy and precise instructions on the how the temple was supposed to function. But in Jesus' time, it had become corrupted. The poor were being exploited, and the powerful were getting rich. In the temple. In it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please make sure your tray tables and seatbacks are in the full upright and locked position and your seatbelts are strapped low and tight across your waist because Jesus is about to enter into this scene of corruption. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise to the temple. And he began to teach them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be a, called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. So Jesus is not sinning here. He's driving out uh, people of the temple, for sure. And he's angry, and he's a great aggressive. Would you not agree? He is furious that people have put an obstacle to prayer. Clear as clear it could be. There's no digging to see that. That's what he said. So how important do you think prayer is to God? You think? That the only time in his physical life that Jesus got aggressive and violent was because somebody had put an obstacle for his people to approach him in prayer. I want to point one thing out that's not obvious, and that has to do with the temple. Don't miss this. I said that the temple was the center of spiritual and religious life. But, but on a, a narrower scale, back then, the temple is where you went to be intimate with God. The temple is where you went to be where God was, to behold him in his glory. There was an intimacy, a solemnness, an awesomeness of being about the temple. And those money changers were messing it all up. One thing I ask from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Jesus was upset that someone was breaking the intimate relationship he has through prayer with his people. I imagine he still is. He doesn't change. He chased people, flipped tables to restore the intimate prayer relationship he had with his people. So I just want to ask you really quick, and then we'll wrap up. Are there any tables in your life that need to be flipped? Is there anything in your life that is practically inhibiting your prayer life? I just want you to remember that Jesus was pretty aggressive in removing those obstacles. Maybe we as a church should consider the same. In conclusion, church, I have a few more things I want to say. God describes his people in the book of 1 Peter as resident aliens. In 2 Corinthians 5, believers are likened to ambassadors. Resident aliens and ambassadors. Resident aliens are foreigners, 
and ambassadors are representatives from a kingdom from somewhere else. That's how God describes us as his people. You see, in other words, spiritually, we're not from around here. We have been called out. Called out of the wide road of destruction that leads to death and into fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, who is currently and actively building us as living stones into a temple of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit whose power raised Jesus from the dead. There is no greater calling. There is no greater mission than to be called out by God into this purpose. So, as Moses was drawn to the peculiar sight of a bush, of a bush that was on fire but was not burning, may this world be so drawn to what is peculiar in us, his church, on whom that same fire of the Holy Spirit now rests as both a gift and a tool to reach this world for the glory of the great and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have a great church. Have a great day. God bless.